Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 34. We're going to be in verses 10 through 28 this morning. Before we read, just to perhaps help orient ourselves uh, to... I guess the sense and the significance of what's happening in this passage, let me, let me go back to um, an analogy or an illustration that we use to um, help us wrestle with the significance of the golden calf episode, just the, the shocking nature of that um, sin and unfaithfulness on the part of the people. We, we said that one of the, one of the ways perhaps uh, to think about or to bring into uh, maybe a more modern-day context, what happens in, uh, in Exodus 32 is to think of a, a man who has taken uh, a bride for himself, and he, after um, going through the ceremony of the two of them uh, exchanging vows, they then go on their honeymoon. It's just the two of them. They're separated from the cares of the world, and uh, most of the distractions of life are nowhere to be found, so they can just focus on each other. And at some point... The new husband says to his new wife, I'm going to speak with, uh, with the architect, go over the, the blueprints that, are being, uh, that I have so that I make sure that the, the house that's going to be built for us is as it's intended to be or according to its design. And so he does that, and then he comes back to the honeymoon suite to find that his new wife has in the short time that he's been communicating with the architect, the blueprint for their house, that his wife has shacked up with another man on their honeymoon. That's Exodus 32. And then as you continue to go through Exodus 32, trying to gain some sort of a meager grasp on how offensive this sin is to see that the Lord has positioned Moses to intercede on behalf of the people so that he would restrain his anger, so that Moses would continue to intercede and plead that the Lord would not remove his presence from the people, but would continue to remain with them and go with them. And then finally, at the end of it all, to see that not only will the Lord allow this unfaithful bride of his, this unfaithful people to live another day, but he commits himself to fulfilling all of the promises that he made when they exchanged their vows and his promise to remain with them actively in their presence for their good, you're stunned by just how good and gracious this holy, infinite God is. And one of the things that we looked at last week when we saw the Lord preparing to come and reveal, make himself known to Moses in a, in, a, in a fuller way, when he's going to come and allow him to experience something of his goodness in the declaration of his name, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, that that is prefaced 
by the Lord telling Moses to get ready, get two more tablets so that we can rewrite the commandments on there, meaning that while I am about to reveal to you just how forgiving and kind I am, make no mistake, I have not changed. My word remains the same. My holiness remains the same. Nothing has changed. It's just that you are experiencing the depths of my mercy and forgiveness to you. That is what is new for you. This is not new for me, but it is a new experience for you based on your sinful reality. And Moses bows low to worship. And then in the passage that we have this morning, starting in 3410, I think this is what's happening in 3410 and following. Okay, the Lord has found that his people are just bent and twisted, that they are easily led astray, that even on the honeymoon, they can commit gross adultery and infidelity. What happens when that bride, that woman, is surrounded by other potential suitors? There's no one around her in the wilderness right now, and she still found a way to commit adultery. What is going to happen when the Lord brings his people into the land surrounded by other people who will look attractive to Israel? or other people to whom Israel will be attractive and they start to make plays at them. If they can't keep themselves wholly devoted to the Lord in isolation, what in the world is going to happen when they're surrounded and they get back to real life? Do you hear that? So 34.10, then God said, behold, I'm going to make a covenant before, uh, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you will not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters may play, might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You will make for yourself no molten gods. You will observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. You will redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey and if you do not redeem it, then you will break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons 
none will appear before me empty-handed. You will work six days, but on the seventh day you will rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you will rest. You will celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders. And no man will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. You will not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You will bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You will not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And the Lord wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. This is God's word for us even today. Let's pray. Holy God and Father, we come to you acknowledging that we are a people who have not remained true in our devotion to you. That we have allowed our eyes to be entertained by the passing pleasures of sin or by the temptations of this life. We have allowed our hearts and our minds to dwell on those things. If we have not outright been adulterous in our acts, we have certainly been adulterous in our minds and in our hearts. And yet we see in your word that you yourself have declared that you are both holy and gracious. That in creating a people for yourself and bringing us into covenant relationship with you, that your commitment to us requires a commitment on our part to you. And so we ask that whether by way of comfort or by way of conviction, that you would impress upon our hearts and minds today according to your spirit, the need for us to be wholly devoted to you. Even according to the pattern that we see in your perfect, obedient, and devoted son, Jesus Christ, let our lives look more and more like his. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. So the Lord is a jealous God. We saw last week that the Lord's name, as he declares it to Moses, is gracious and compassionate, that he is abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, that he is slow to anger, that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. All of these things, the Lord says, this is my name, this is my character, this is what I'm like. Here, as you heard already, one of the phrases that the Lord uses in Exodus 34 in the first half, he uses here in the second half when he says that his name is jealous. That is to say that however we wrestle with it, however we attempt to conceive of it, we have to recognize the fact that while the Lord is gracious and forgiving to sinful people, he is also at the same time jealous. That is, he demands and expects the pure, undiluted devotion of his people to himself. I think in part, or not in part, I think in a significant way, 
That's the primary message or point that's being communicated in verses 10 through 28. In fact, I think, as we'll spend our time here this morning in this passage, I think that for all of the commandments, the the seemingly miscellaneous and random commands and instructions that you get in verses 17 and following, I think all of that ought to be seen in light of what God says about their devotion to Him in the first 16 verses or so. So we're going to try to walk through this passage by nailing three points. Number one, stating the obvious right up front, as the Lord Himself does, the Lord requires pure devotion from His people. Number two, Pure devotion is characterized by complete obedience. And number three, the Lord gives what He commands. He commands us to be purely devoted to Him, and He gives us the ability to devote ourselves to Him. Number one, the Lord requires pure devotion from His people. Go back up to to verse 10. And if you look at verse 10, and if you have 10 through 28 actually on the the pages that are open to you, it'll be easier to see this. But this section that we just read is framed with the idea that the Lord is making a covenant with His people. So in verse 10, then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. If you skip down to verse 27, we we read that the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you in Israel. So that framing, both at the front end and the back end, is probably an indication or a clue that one of the ways that we ought to read this passage is through the lens of covenant making and covenant keeping. Having said that, notice that what the Lord does not say here is that He's making a new covenant with them. Right? New covenant language doesn't come up until we start to get to Jeremiah and some of the prophets. No, I am making a covenant with you. And then when you read about the stipulations of the covenant in verses 17 and following, what you find out is that the stipulations of this covenant here in this passage are actually very similar, in many cases identical, to the stipulations of the covenant that God gave them in chapters 20 through 23. All that to say, this is not a new covenant that God is making with His people. This is God renewing the covenant that His people already broke as a result of the golden calf. God is forgiving He is pardoning His people. And one of the ways that He's demonstrating the fact that He is completely forgiving them is that He is bringing them back into the covenant that they broke without adding any stipulations or any regulations to it. He is willing to give them, as it were, a clean start. Things are going to go back to the way they were before the people ever sinned in their immorality. So in verse 10, when the Lord says that He's going to make a covenant, He says, before all your people, I will perform miracles, 
which have not been produced in all the earth nor any of the nations. That, that word there for miracles is the word that shows up earlier in Exodus to talk about the miracles or the wonders that God will perform in Egypt to let his people know that he is there with them and is working to bring them out of their slavery into new life. It's actually one of the things that Israel sings in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, 11. You don't need to turn there. But they say, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, working miracles? It's the same word that shows up here in 3410. In other words, when God renews his people, brings them back into right fellowship with him, they find that the covenant still stands and still remains. God is not going to be tepidly tolerating them. He's welcoming them back, and he is just as committed to his people now, even after their sin, as he was in the very beginning when he is bringing them out and giving them new birth. That is unbelievable grace and kindness. By the way, that is the unbelievable grace and kindness that you and I experience every day because of Jesus Christ. That when we confess our sins, he is faithful and right to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he welcomes us back into right fellowship with him as if nothing had happened. Undeserving people that we are. Here's the problem though. The problem is, not, uh, is obviously not with God. The problem is with his people. They're not going to find fault with God. There is plenty of fault, perhaps, yet to be found with the people. So the, the, the dynamic at work here in this passage is the Lord saying up front and at the end, I am making, I am renewing this covenant with you. I am committed to you. Now the question is, especially in light of your adultery, your immorality, I am committed to you. Are you committed to me? Look at the way that that comes out in this passage. The Lord says twice, that there is a danger that having in, that enjoying a covenant with the Lord, that the people would then turn and make a covenant with others. So look in verse 12, for example. Verse 12 says, Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will be a snare in your midst. Look down in verse 15. You might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods. They would prostitute themselves with their gods. 
God is committed to his people, the question is, are his people committed to him? Notice, though, the subtlety of the danger that will confront God's people, that he is warning them about right now, before they ever enter into the land and begin to have regular interaction or exposure to these other idolatrous, immoral people. Listen, he says in verse 12 and verse 15, he, he does not, or let me start with what he doesn't say. He does not say, I am concerned that you may make a covenant with their gods. He doesn't say that. He says, I am concerned that you may make a covenant with the inhabitants, with the neighbors, with the people who are around you, and that in making a covenant with them, you will find yourself, before you realize it, prostituting yourselves with their gods. Oh, come on. Lighten up, Lord. We're just wanting to be good neighbors. That's all we're trying to do. It's just business. It doesn't matter what we do here. We, 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 we're big enough to have a working relationship, but not to mix and mingle the religious part of our life with the business part of our life. Give us a little bit of credit. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that sometimes... Spiritual adultery can start with social niceties. I want to live at peace with this person or that person, with this group of people. I want to be thought well of by this guild or that guild. I want to gain their respect. I will enter into partnerships, relationships. I'll engage and interact with them so that we can create something good here. And no matter what the good intentions are up front, those social niceties, that desire to be well thought of, to be a good neighbor, ends up leading you away from the Lord. Come on, Merritt. This is the Old Testament, right? Jesus told us to love our neighbors. We're supposed to love everyone. Yes, absolutely true, no doubt. I'm not talking about the fact that in the, for the sake of devotion to the Lord that we perpetually walk around as arrogant jerks. That's not the point. Here, hold your place here and go to 2 Corinthians just to see something of the New Testament concept of this very thing in what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 6. Verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. And then the very first lines here is Exodus language that Paul quotes. We are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the, says the Lord Almighty. And then look at 7.1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The question is not necessarily how will I be a friend or a neighbor or a partner with these non-Christians, but how will I be a friend, a neighbor, a partner with them and still grow in holiness? Far too often in the Christian life, especially in this day and age, once again, sometimes, initially, especially, the motivations are good, the intent is good and right in an effort to win an audience. We go to other people, we try to acclimate ourselves with other people so that they will listen to us, so that they will see something different about the Christian life. But the danger is that in trying to acclimate yourself to them, you actually end up becoming like them rather than them becoming like you. Robert Murray McShane said, old dead pastor, said, what my people need most from me, how would you finish that? What do you need most from your pastor or from another Christian, doesn't have to be your pastor, another brother or sister in Christ? Here's what he said, what my people need most from me is my holiness. They don't need someone, in other words, who is on the cutting edge of technology. They don't need someone who is thought to be relevant and with it. They need someone who knows God. What your neighbor needs if they are not in Christ, what your family needs if they do not know Christ, 
They don't need to know how much you know of their life. They need to know something of what holiness looks like. Flip just a couple pages back. Are you still in 2 Corinthians? You ought to be because I didn't tell you to go anywhere else. All right, go from 2 Corinthians 6 back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Pick up at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Listen. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling or corrupting the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? If I'm going to go and I'm going to be in the workplace, if I'm going to be in the classroom, if I'm going to be out on the field, If I'm going to be out on the lake, if I'm going to be out on the golf course, if I'm going to be in the shop, in the mall, whatever it is, wherever I'm going to be, make me the aroma of Christ. Let me be the kind of person who when I walk into the room, when people speak with me, when they look at me, when they watch, I want them to see and to know something, even if they can't articulate it. I want them to see and know something about the God that I serve and the God who saved me. I don't need all the other stuff to try to win people. They get all that other stuff from the rest of the world. How, why do we think that we're going to be able to give them more of the world stuff than the, what the world can give them already? But what the world can't give them is what you and I have, and that's Christ. In your Canaan, in your Babylon, in your time of wandering, In this exile life, do you find yourself to be something like a stranger and an alien in this world? Or do you find that you do the very things that God has warned his people of in Exodus 34 in order to make this life more comfortable and bearable you take some of your commitment that ought to be reserved from the Lord and you give it to other people. You turn yourself, for whatever reason, into a spiritual adulterer. Back in Exodus 34... This is not an irrelevant question or concern to raise. All of this concern about whether or not the people will remain true and committed to the Lord 
even as there are distractions and competing desires and affections that are trying to lure them away from the Lord, all of this is necessary and important, first and foremost, because of who God is. God says that his name, meaning his very nature and character as it concerns his people, is jealous. Now, just for the sake of time, don't think of this word jealous in the negative way that we typically think of it or along the lines of the way that we define it. Right? Obviously, this is a good and right jealousy. This is the right jealousy that a man ought to have for his wife. If a wife came to her husband and said, I appreciate all the things that we have here, this life that we're building, we even have a couple nice kids, that was a pleasant surprise. Right? Things are going really well for us. But I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to get on friendly terms with a coworker. He's asked me out to dinner. Don't worry, I won't be out late. That's a problem. It's also a problem if that husband, hearing that his wife is about to go have dinner with another man, says, eh. Suit yourself. Something's not right with that either. If God were not jealous for the love and devotion of his people, he would not be a loving God. It is because of his intense love for his people and his desire to do them good through all the days of their lives, that he is jealous for their devotion and affection to him. He made them for himself. He made them for himself so that he could give abundant goodness to them. And if he doesn't care about them going and wrecking their lives, if that does not stir and provoke a holy jealousy for his people, then the Lord does not truly love and care for his people. Because the Lord does love and care for his people, he is jealous for them. Therefore, every time that your eye is caught in such a way that your mind and heart is taken from the Lord and set on someone or something else, the jealousy of the Lord is stirred and provoked over you. The Lord requires pure devotion from his people. Number two, pure devotion is characterized by complete obedience. Look in verses 11 and 12. After saying that he's going to make a covenant with the people, that he's going to be fully committed to them, he, he says two things. In verse 11, be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day, and then skip down to verse 12, watch yourself that you may make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Observe what I'm commanding you, and watch yourselves. The, even though it sounds different, the same root word is being used in both of those statements. 
I think, right, this is not a hill that I'll die on, but I think that the significance of that is this, is that these two statements in 11 and 12, keeping an eye on God's commandments and keeping an eye on yourself, those two things go together like links in a chain. If you are going to remain faithful, in other words, to the Lord, you must keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments, you will be keeping watch over your soul. If you intend to keep watch over your soul, you will keep God's commandments. Do you see? You can't really do one without doing the other. Both of them in, involve watching and seeing, looking, keeping track of what's going on. So for as gracious and forgiving as what God is, and He is, gloriously so, we ought not forget the fact that remaining in that covenant love is marked out by our obedience. Our obedience is both a mark that we are in God's covenant, and it's also the means by which we remain in the covenant. Not the means, a means. So listen then, think, I th as, you, as you go through in verses 17 and following, I think this is, this is what happens. If, if the people are gonna go into the land, if they're gonna remain committed to the Lord, what kinds of things do they need to be looking for and watching for? Look at verse 18 and then verses 23 and 24. Verse 18 says, you will observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time. And then 23 and 24, three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. I'll drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No man will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. One of the ways that you will keep yourself devoted to the Lord is by keeping his commands to observe the rhythms and the rituals of life. Have you ever thought about the fact, do you ever consider that what you're doing right now is one of the very things that keeps you following hard after Christ? This, waking up on Sunday morning and coming and sitting here. Why? Why would you do that? Well, whether you know it or not, the reason that we do this is because the Lord has called us to do this. He calls his people to gather together on regular intervals from the very beginning of the church to this present day so that we will give our time to him saying, there is someone in life who is more important than all of the other pressures and demands of this life. And if I don't get that commitment right, everything else doesn't mean anything. Parents and grandparents or guardians, aunts and uncles, have you ever thought about the fact that one of the ways that you can encourage your kids to grow in their relationship with Christ is by keeping track of time? 
Sunday morning comes. Junior doesn't want to get out of bed. Been there, done that. Sorry, Junior. You may not know it now, but this is for your good. Get out of bed. We're going to church. Or do you think you have better ways to use your time even though this is what the Lord has called you to, and are you assuming that by giving the time that the Lord has called for himself, by giving that to someone or something else, do you think that it will not affect you in your devotion to the Lord? If you think that you can manage your time in the way that you want, in spite of the fact that the Lord has given clear instructions and it not affect you spiritually, you're fooling yourself. Look at verses 19 and 20. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock. The first offspring from every cattle. You will redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you don't redeem it, you'll break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None will appear before me empty-handed. And then in verse 26, you will bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. One of the ways that the Lord keeps his people close to him is by giving. When we have people go through our new member class, usually as we begin to wrap things up, when we do a new member interview, we say that there are three, maybe four things that we try to emphasize. Those are the first two. Gather regularly what we're doing right now and give faithfully. Not because we're first and foremost concerned with how many people we can pack into the sanctuary or how much you donate or give to the church, but because in light of what God himself has said, both Old Testament and New Testament, regularly gathering with God's people and faithfully giving of your time and your resources and your energy are ways that God grows you in your love and affection for Christ and his people. And not to do that is to shrivel up in your soul and to die spiritually. Verse 21, you will work six days, but on the seventh day you will rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you will rest. One of the ways that you will keep yourself devoted to the Lord is by taking regular periods of time for you to set your mind on the Lord and only the Lord. That's one of the reasons why you ought to read the scriptures regularly. It's why you ought to pray regularly. If I could even push you a little bit further, you ought to take walks in your neighborhood or in the mall with no phone or anything like that, or at least turn it off, and you ought just to think about the Lord, just meditate on the Lord, who he is, what he's like, what he's promised, what he said. Make those times where your mind is closing everything out so that you can set your heart and mind on the Lord, the one who sanctifies you. Even Jesus, for all of his grace and forgiveness, did not mince words and did not minimize the importance of obedience 
Obedience does not cause us to be saved, but obedience is a mark of those who have been saved. Jesus says in, 8:30, in John 8:31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you continue in my word. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Do you hear that last part? Listen, obedience is not merely the mark of those who have been saved and made new. If we have been made new, we will live differently. Our obedience is a mark of that transformation. Jesus himself says, that in our obedience, we gain more knowledge and fellowship with him and the Father. That promised reward is enough to motivate me to be obedient. Because any other pursuit to my left or to my right, if it's not in obedience to the Father and in following in the footsteps of Christ, it is not going to give me the delight that God can give me. God, help me be obedient so that I can enjoy you more. All of this then sets us up well for coming to the Lord's table. The Lord is concerned for the spiritual health and well-being of his people. He makes a people for himself. He makes and keeps covenant with them. He gives them directions as to how they may enjoy that covenant reality with him. And one of the realities that he has given to us, his new covenant people, is not a feast, it's not a Mecca that we have to take to Jerusalem. It's coming to this table and remembering that our covenant relationship has been created in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he has made and kept covenant with us, when we obey the command of Christ to keep that celebratory meal, we're keeping ourselves in his love. So before we begin to enter into this shared meal together, let me say, if you are here and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have not been reconciled to God through Christ. You don't know what it means to be in permanent, eternal standing, right standing with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This meal is not for you. This meal, symbolically, is for those who are a part of God's covenant people. But, if you would desire to feed on the life that is offered in Jesus Christ, this and infinitely more can be given to you today. Not through your obedience, but through the obedience of Christ. It is yours for the asking. So if that's you, if you're here, if you don't know Christ, we would just simply ask that for today, as these elements are passed, 
that you would just allow them to pass by you and that if you are wanting to know how can I get in on that relationship that God's people enjoy with him, I want to become one of you. You can find me at the front at the end of the service. You can find one of our elders in the back. You can talk to almost any number of people in here and they would love to talk to you about how to feast on Christ. Turn with me to James chapter four. Listen to these verses and see if it doesn't sound like the same jealous God who revealed himself in the Old Testament is the same jealous God who has made himself known to us. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But then verse six, but he gives greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. One of the things that God has done for his people by giving us Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his spirit is to give us the grace to grow us in our devotion and in our love for him. There is no way that any of our desires are strong enough to satisfy the holy, jealous desire that God has for his people. And yet never measuring up, never being able to satisfy God's desire for his own people, once again, in grace, he has come and given himself to us so that those loves and desires for him that were foreign to our hearts are now implanted within us. And he feeds on those implanted desires so that they grow and bloom and bear fruit. So if you're here today and you're feeling the weight of Exodus 34, the weight of a God who is jealous for you, a wayward and wandering Christian, you are where you need to be because when you take of these elements as a covenant member of the body of Christ, you are reminding yourself that it is not my efforts that keeps me in my good standing with the Lord, but it is the grace of Jesus Christ given to me by his spirit so that even when I stray, I can turn and love him again. Men, would you come forward to help serve the elements?
once the men have the plates and they turn and make their way back up the aisle, we would just ask that you would hold the element until we can all partake of it together. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Let me just say a brief word to the kids that we have sitting with us. If you're sitting with your mom and dad or your grandparents and they took this little piece of bread, the reason that they took that piece of bread is because they know 
that they have not obeyed God the way that they ought to have obeyed him. They know that God could punish them forever. But they also know that even though they deserve to be punished, that Jesus was punished in their place, that he died on the cross to be punished by his father so that we would not have to be punished. And what they're saying, what your mom and dad are saying when they take this bread, they're saying that my life, what gives me life with God is the life of Jesus Christ. And I want more of Jesus in me. So parents, grandparents, adults, brothers and sisters in Christ, would you take and eat with joy? Men, if you would come forward to distribute the cup.
And boys and girls, your mom and dad have taken this cup, and so many of the other grown-ups in this room have taken this cup because they know that because of all of their sin and disobedience, the only way that they could have been forgiven was that Jesus had to actually die in their place. And that because Jesus has died in their place, they know that they have been forgiven and washed clean of all of their sin and disobedience. Your mom and dad, your, the adults in this room, pastors, elders are not perfect, but we are forgiven. Take and drink. Father, we ask that you would help us to rejoice in the life that is ours in Christ by your Spirit, according to the promises that you have made and kept. We ask that one of the marks of our covenant relationship with you would be a firm and dynamic obedience that causes our lives to carry with us the aroma of Christ everywhere that we go. Father, more than that, we want to remember that even when our obedience wanes and falters, that we are safe not because of our perfection, but because of the perfection of Christ. And it's because of him that we enjoy this meal together as a reminder of that and as a testimony to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.